all who come to this happy place, welcome. Hello, and welcome to the Kingswell Avenue Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Newhouse. Kingswell Avenue Podcast is about the Walt Disney Company and what I like to call its four pillars. The Disney Studios, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, and Pixar. On a weekly basis, I'll be looking at Disney in the news as well as taking a deep dive into a person, place, or thing which I believe had a huge impact on the company. I'll be doing all of this in, generally speaking, short episodes so you can get a dose of Disney and get on with your life. That being said, let's turn to the news. This week, we find ourselves in a good news, bad news type of situation. Let's get the bad news out of the way first. Those of you who have been around since the inception of Star Wars probably know the name Alan Dean Foster. He's a novelist of both his own original fiction and movie tie-ins. He ghost-wrote the Star Wars novelization for George Lucas in the sequel novel Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which is a side story that brought Luke and Leia into conflict with Darth Vader over a force-amplifying gem called the Kyber Crystal. Since buying Lucasfilm, Disney has, according to Foster, stopped paying him his royalties. What's more, when Disney bought 20th Century Fox, they acquired the books based on the Alien franchise, which Foster also wrote. And again, according to Foster, stopped paying him his royalties on those, too. All of this would be bad enough if Foster and his wife weren't both critically ill and in need of money. It may surprise you to learn that I'm not a lawyer and I certainly don't know all the ins and outs of this case, But if it has merit, I can only say, step up and do the right thing, Disney. If you'd like to know more, I've linked an article in the show notes. But hey, I think that's enough bad news for this week. Speaking of the show notes, check out the video Disney Imagineering posted this week. Of course, WDI would like you to remember the theme parks during this troubled time. So they put out a minute and a half long tease for the attractions headed our way in the hopefully not too distant future. Featured are revamps at Epcot, a Ratatouille ride in Paris a Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster, the Avengers Campus in Anaheim, and a few others. Follow the link to see more. Meanwhile, Disney Plus dropped all eight first-season episodes of a new documentary series, Marvel 616. Since each installment is roughly an hour long, I'll only cover the first couple in this week's podcast. The first episode of the series tells the story of the Japanese Spider-Man TV show, a mid-70s program which had almost nothing to do with the American character it was based on. Sure, Spider-Man's costume was the same, but his guns and giant transforming robot were very different indeed. Marvel had tried selling its comics in Japan for years, but had made no inroads. Japanese comics, or manga as they're called, are very visual, almost like movie storyboards, whereas their stateside counterparts can be very dialogue-heavy. Finally, the company hit upon the strategy of building a TV show to capitalize on licensing rights, and it could be as different as it needed to be to appeal to local audiences as long as it didn't travel outside of Japan. Japan was ahead of the curve in terms of building its shows around toy brands. Thus it was robots and vehicles were added so more toys could be sold. I'm not going to spoil it any further, just know the first episode is an interesting and bizarre window into another culture's take on a hero we all take for granted. The second episode of 616 focuses on the women of Marvel from the 1960s to the present. I had no idea there were so many of them in such diverse roles. In fact, it seems to me Marvel was fairly progressive in integrating women into creative positions, writers, editors, and artists, as early as the 1970s. Many of the names I recognized from my own time reading the books, and it was good to put faces to the names. My one complaint with this one was, at an hour and ten minutes, it was a little long. But that's not too serious an issue. I'm not sure how long they've been up, but Disney Plus also has two eight-minute episodes of The Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse. As a longtime animation fan, I recommend these shorts without reservation. 
It takes a moment to get into the broad, stylized vibe, but Wonderful World captures the feel of classic cartoons, partly by dropping in a more modern Ren and Stimpy sensibility. For those of you who remember that influential 90s Nickelodeon show, you'll see what I mean immediately. In short, these cartoons are much better than the new Bugs Bunnies made for HBO Max. They don't look as cheap, and they're funnier. I don't know what the plan is, but I hope they add more episodes of Mickey soon. I do have one suggestion for the animators, though. Seeing Goofy with shoes but no pants? It's a little unnerving. Speaking of Disney+, Plus, this week's Mandalorian was a mixed bag for me. The first half was, I thought, a little clunky, which I attributed to the direction. Carl Weathers was the director this time out, so I'd never tell him to his face. Critiquing the work of Apollo Creed probably wouldn't end well. That said, the action sequence that took up most of the episode was extremely well done, and we got some puzzle pieces from Season 1 filled in. Drips and drabs of info on why Moff Gideon is so interested in Baby Yoda. I don't want to dip into spoilers. Suffice to say, it's even more sinister-seeming than most of us probably thought. It's starting to look like Giancarlo Esposito's Gideon is an imperial villain in the classic Star Wars mold. Some folks were probably hoping for the first appearance of former Jedi Ahsoka Tano, but I expected this little side trip. The arc of this season is about as well-paced as last year's. They've got to keep us on the hook so they can't give us everything at once. I've mentioned that I write myself, so I tend to be ahead of most stories our readers see. Thankfully, that's not the case with The Mandalorian. I honestly have no idea yet where this season's going to end up, which obviously is great. Speaking of The Mandalorian, Vox posted a video explaining the volume, the absolutely stunning technology used to film the Disney Plus program. If you're unfamiliar with the technique, it basically eliminates the need to ever go outside. Environments are created in the Unreal game engine and displayed on gigantic screens the actors perform in front of. The cameras capture both the characters and their virtual sets simultaneously with the screens also providing the lighting. If my explanation doesn't make sense to you, watch the video linked in the notes. This method of movie making is truly revolutionary. On the topic of movie making and technology, let's do this week's deep dive. A look at film pioneer George Lucas, or more specifically a life-changing incident from the director's early days. Beyond his contributions to storytelling, Lucas was a technological trailblazer from the beginning of his career. He pioneered motion control cameras, a new way of filming models like spacecraft, in the 1970s, computer-assisted editing in the 1980s, and fully computer-generated characters and environments in the 1990s. In the 2000s, he led the switch from film cameras to their digital counterparts, completely changing the way images are captured and processed. Given his role as an innovator, it's little wonder his company, Industrial Light and Magic, is behind the volume technology I described in the news. Lucas's interest in machine-human interaction began, before his filmmaking days, with cars. During his high school years, he wanted to be a race car driver, so he spent most of his time with racers and mechanics, fully immersing himself in that world. He raced at fairgrounds on the underground circuit and was quite serious about the sport. During one such race, days before his graduation, George skidded his souped-up Italian sports car into a Chevy Impala, rolled over multiple times, and was finally thrown from the vehicle when his seatbelt snapped. Most people agree that, had it not been for that defective piece of equipment, Lucas would have died that day. Though he had this bit of what we can only call good luck, the young man from Northern California suffered serious injuries as a result of the incident. His lungs were bruised from severe hemorrhaging and he was hospitalized for some time. During his recuperation, he changed his priorities. He no longer wanted to be a race car driver. He enrolled at Modesto Junior College to study anthropology, sociology, and literature, subjects which were helpful in his later creation of a movie universe. 
He also took up photography and cinematography, buying himself an 8mm movie camera and using it to film the races he used to participate in. This led him to an interest in avant-garde and foreign cinema. He grew to love directors like Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, and Federico Fellini. It was a whole new direction for a kid raised on comic books and TV. It was while filming car races that Lucas met professional cinematographer Haskell Wexler, who was also a racing enthusiast. Wexler, who shot such movies as In the Heat of the Night, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Days of Heaven, recognized and encouraged George's talent. While he was at USC, Lucas met and befriended other men who would become notable directors, writers, and technicians in the 70s and beyond. People like Randall Kleiser, John Milas, Walter Murch, and someone else you might have heard of, Steven Spielberg. After graduating in 1967, George directed one last short film, winning a student Oscar in the process. Then he moved on to shoot behind-the-scenes footage on the Hollywood feature Finian's Rainbow. This movie was directed by another 70s giant, Francis Ford Coppola, who would go on to direct The Godfather. Coppola took a liking to Lucas and encouraged him to make a feature. George elected to turn his award-winning student film into a full-length movie, resulting in THX 1138, a dystopian science fiction film with Robert Duvall. Unfortunately, THX was a gigantic flop, so Coppola challenged Lucas to make a comedy, something more audience-friendly. The result was American Graffiti, a slice of early 60s Northern California life. This movie, released in 1973, ended up being one of the most profitable movies of all time. Filmgoers loved it, and Lucas became a hot property. George's new cachet wasn't enough to get over the resistance studios threw up when they heard what he wanted to do next, a space opera in the tradition of Flash Gordon. Despite Graffiti's success, every executive in Hollywood said no to Star Wars. Every executive except one. Alan Ladd Jr. at 20th Century Fox. And he really didn't get it either. But he thought George was talented and he was willing to roll the dice. That gamble paid off when, in 1977, Star Wars became the biggest box office success in history, knocking Spielberg's jaws out of the top spot. And probably none of this would have happened if George hadn't been in a near-fatal car accident, an accident that changed his whole path in life. Lucas often gets a bad rap for the Star Wars prequels. While much of that criticism is warranted, it shouldn't overshadow the man's absolutely staggering contributions to both our popular culture and our ability to make and present cinematic stories. He's truly a giant in his field. Well, that brings us to the end of Lucas's story and this week's episode. I want to say goodbye, I want to say thank you for listening, and I want to ask you to tell your friends. If you can, drop us a review in iTunes. Until next week, this has been the Kingswell Avenue Podcast, and I'm Paul Newhouse, signing off.